Welcome back to the Shema Podcast and part two of But I'm a Good Person with Rabbi Yokoff Wolby. Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. You know, I found that when, when situations are external, there's a lot more clarity. Like everyone I know when they were a kid and heard the story about Abraham realizing there's one God, when everyone else was worshiping these little clay figurines and, and idols, I remember everyone was just like, how could they have done that? I would have been like Abraham too. I would have obviously recognized this is nonsense because the situation is external at that point. But when it comes down to the real question of he was, he drew a conclusion that was the opposite of everyone else on the planet. Definitely not the norm. He was a total extremist. Contrarian. Total contrarian. Iconoclast. Yeah. But when we find ourselves in that exact same situation, it's very hard to go against what everyone else around you is thinking and doing. I think there's a lot of this inhibiting your mission and my mission to get people to think about Torah with a more open light to really expose themselves to it. I think there's a lot of this of this kind of social norms that you and I violate. What do you mean? You don't turn your phone on on Shabbos for 25 hours? What are you, a Luddite? <laughs> right? right? There's a lot of that. You really walk around with the yarmulke on your head and your tzitzis out like you do that? Really? Like you actually do that? You really won't eat food because it wasn't supervised by rabbinic uh, kashras, uh, right? You re- really do that? There, you know, there's a certain ridiculing of religion in in society, and and that's a bigger obstacle that needs to be addressed more than any of the theological or intellectual problems, so to speak, of what we're trying to popularize, at least expose the people to. to. When I was in my late twenties. I was beginning to explore maybe the religion thing. I had this like little moment of craziness. But what I calculated was based off, if the Jews are right, why are they such a small minority? You would think great ideas would become very popular. And so I didn't look at that. I was like, the Christians seem to be right because there's so many of them. So I explored that and realized, this is crazy. And then I just backed back away and went back into my atheism. Yeah, well, we, we have to remember, I think it's good to remember historical examples of the entire world being wrong. So you brought up the idolatry example. You know, idolatry in its most literal sense is almost extinct in this world. But we know this, this is well documented, that societies as recently as a couple thousand years ago, uh, it, it was almost universal. Like paganism was universal. And these are people that are very sophisticated. These are not fools. They're not fools. You know, the, you know, the great uh, Greek philosophers were very capable, intelligent, sophisticated, sharp, bright, much more intelligent than the public intellectuals that we have today. Yet they were all idolaters. So if you and I were using this standard, this yardstick of saying, hey, let's just outsource all of the important decisions of our lives to the masses, well, then we would be idolaters in the times where that's what everyone else did, we would be receptive to child sacrifice. 
in the times where that was popular. Uh, murder in times where you know people were murdered for relatively minor transgressions. We would sign off on that. If we are going to outsource our moral standards to to the masses, it could bring us to pretty you know to what we would accept universally today to be very dark places. Right. So the fact that Jews are a small minority, well, okay. First of all, it doesn't cause us any problems because we don't believe that Judaism is supposed to create a universal religion. Right. We're not supposed to proselytize, right? Right. Yeah, I always say that the Jews are are Navy SEALs, spiritual Navy SEALs. If everyone was a Navy SEAL, then a Navy SEAL would lose its meaning, right? Right. If we are the elite, the, the spiritual elite of the Almighty in this planet, we're his representatives here. You cannot have a million ambassadors in a country. It's only when there's one or two or three or four representatives, they can represent the other party. We're the Almighty's representatives in this world. And our job is to make sure that we maintain the standards that he set for us. But ultimately, that's going to influence the entire world away from paganism and towards the acceptance of, of the belief in God, towards, right. towards monotheism. Which, by the way, by that standard, we're doing pretty well. Did right. you ever wonder why Christianity is eroding, whereas Islam is not? Isn't that interesting? You know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, there were... I don't know, hundreds of millions, billions of Christians and Muslims. And today, the Christians are kind of waning. Their commitment to Christianity is waning, whereas the Muslims, it's not. To me, the answer is simple. One of them is idolatry, and one of them isn't. So we're getting closer to the messianic ideal of the world re-embracing monotheism. Right. If you and I were to telegraph how we would imagine, how the Torah would forecast the Messianic era happening, it would happen exactly like this. The, the Muslims would remain steadfast to their theological principles, whereas the Christians, you know, they won't go back to become pagans, but the whole, uh, whole Christianity thing will be less appealing to them. Very true. All these things are, are playing out. <laughs> One of the things I was thinking about was for my, my, my late 20s through late 30s, I volunteered for an organization called Child Advocates, where I was a, a court-appointed guardian ad litem for kids in child protective service custody. One of the things I remember was I was always trying to like counsel the parents to do what they need to do so I could approve a family reunification. But I remember talking to so many parents, whether it was neglect through drug addiction or this one guy who was uh, hit his teenage daughter, and I would try to talk to him about go through the. He was told he had to go through anger management classes, and I kept saying, "Look, man, you got to go through these." And he's like, "I don't need anger management." I was like, "I know what the judge wants." He's like, "I don't need it." And I was like, "Okay, I'm just telling you that if you want the kids back, you need to go to." Him. He's like. And he stood up and yelled, like, I told you I don't need it. And if you bring it up again, I'm going to rip your effing head off your shoulders and defecate in it. And that was cleaner language. So. <laughs> you got to keep this in. <laughs> so the, the, the point is, is that as I was talking to these parents, one of the things they would always, always say to me is, I should have my kids back. I'm a good person. Always. Because from their vantage point, what they, what their kids were experiencing is what they experienced. It was their norm. And they really saw themselves as a good person and were befuddled by the fact that the state came in and took their kids away. And I remember that resonated with me, like how 
left our own devices, we can go so awry from what actually is being a good person. Yeah, if I remember, the the seminal book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, like that's how he starts off. Everyone thinks they're a great person. The criminals, the rapists, the murderers, they all think that they're great people. That's just maybe the human condition that we're always we're always trying to justify our behavior. We always are able to, you know, find ways to to render ourselves as being good. Right. So that's not a, a standard that we, you know, when we look at other people, we say, well, they don't actually live up to that standard, but those people themselves would apply that standard to themselves. Let me ask you this. I did see a verse in Parsha a few weeks back. I can find it. You probably know it. Where there is a verse sort of talking about Moshe warning people about saying, I don't need to follow Torah and that I'm, a, I'm good with God. I'm probably just ad-libbing based off the commentary of Rashi. Can you speak a little bit about that? Because it's obviously that there is sort of a warning of going this route. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think what you're referring to is the beginning of Parshas Nitzavim, a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, I think it was, where we Moshe gathers the whole nation, and he gives them this warning. Maybe there's a like, root amongst you that is bearing bitter fruit and there's a man or a woman or a family or a tribe whose heart deviates away today and they said shalom yeheli there'll be peace for me I could do whatever I want and I won't suffer the consequences right yeah so that's a great example that the notion of of people feeling or announcing declaring that their behavior is not problematic that goes back to times of Moshe so maybe that is a, a great example of the fact that this kind of uh, cognitive dissonance and and confirmation bias and people always justifying their current status and no more, that goes back to times of Moshe. And by the way, I have a thing that I like to tell my uh, very religious friends. It makes them really nervous. Listen to this. I tell my very religious friends, you know, isn't it, isn't it awful that there's so many Jews who don't believe in Torah and don't keep Shabbos? Isn't that awful? And they're like, yeah, it's so awful. Like, yeah, then they don't know and they don't realize how they don't. And then I say, don't you realize that you and I are like the same thing? There's just, we're just different levels of this. I right. say, hey, wait, let's look at the Talmud. What does the Talmud say about people who neglect Torah study? What does the Talmud say about that? Hmm? What does it say? It says some really, really scary stuff about people who neglect Torah study. Do you neglect Torah study? Well, do you know, come on. Yeah. Everyone is good enough in their own minds. Right. We like to put people in buckets. So this guy is religious. They are orthodox. They are observant. They know how to read Hebrew. They go to shul. They wear their film. They're good. And these other guys over there, oh, no, they're not religious enough. They're heretics. They're not non-believers. The truth is we all have to be willing to challenge ourselves. That's what the money expects of us. Moshe, to his very last day, was challenging himself. There's never a time that we can be complacent. And you and I also have this same problem. I'm a good person. You're right. Dan, you're, we're, we're, like, we're like patting ourselves on the back. <laughs> Look at us. We get it. <laughs> it's only the clowns out there who don't get it, right? That's what we, that's right. we got together in your gorgeous office and we said, okay, let's talk about all those other fools who just don't get it. They just don't get it. <laughs> but the truth is that that's you and I as well. Right. We are these same people. And... The only way that anyone can be moved is if they're willing to to expose themselves, make themselves vulnerable to the possibility that maybe there's room for improvement. And I think that's that's true to me. It's true to you. I'm, I'm, this was not even my I, like when we talked about speaking about this. This is not the angle that I thought we would go down. 
but I think there's there's something true about this. Yes. That this is not just for the people who are quote unquote not religious, not observant, reform, unaffiliated, whatever it is, whatever term we want to give to them, it's for us as well. You know, I I, I wear to fill in every day. I've never knowingly, willfully violated Shabbos. Never. Oh, and so like I'm like oh, I'm one of the good ones right I'm one of the good ones that's what, I, that's what I would think but but no like the Almighty expects a lot more of me and of you than what we're delivering is that true is that true yeah absolutely yes so you also say you're a good person and the, and the Yetzirah always wants us to look outward never inward yeah Dan yeah. come on Dan I'm a good person come on Dan you're a good person I've always thought I was a good person <laughs> even in my 20s when I was committing every sin you know, I had my parameters. So I'm glad you made that point. Whenever someone thinks that there's something happening and God didn't orchestrate it and they get frustrated, like I know those moments. Like, why is this happening? In that moment, I tell people, in those moments, I'm an atheist. Yeah. As terrifying as that sounds. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think that that would be, to me, the, the, opening, the opening of this whole discussion is that the only way we could have a productive conversation about this is if we're willing to actually threaten our our cherished status quo. And that's you and that's me and that's everyone that we know. Most people don't want to go there or it's too painful. And then, okay, but that's where the discussion has to end because we, if we try to jump a step, if we try to jump a step, it's not going to work. And sometimes you see this a lot where... You know, I always like to think of, of people as big buildings and it needs to have a good, strong foundation. Right. And you can't really skip any steps. The Talmud says that a person who's not a landowner is not a person, which sounds, you know, very, very antiquated. But like, what does that mean? You're a person, but you don't have land, so you're not a person. So my grandfather used to always explain, based upon a teaching from his master, from his teacher, that we have to be grounded we can't try to jump up to heaven. We have to always build, so to speak, layer upon layer, a strong foundation and not skip any parts. So you and I know people, I definitely know a lot of people like this, who grew up without Torah and grew up without mitzvah observance, without Shabbos, and were inspired and became very observant. Some even became rabbis. And amongst that group, you have some of the most amazing people that I have ever met, just incredibly inspiring people, people who were willing to, to change, which is the most inspire, inspiring thing in the world. And then you have people who become very religious. Oftentimes they get very visually observant and become very zealous. And then they have a relapse. They have recidivism and drop it all. And to me, that's very sad. It's very sad because someone was brave enough to expose themselves to the beauty of Torah, but they did it or they were maybe you know, poorly advised to do it in a way that didn't build a strong foundation and didn't build every step, every, every, every layer of that building. So, so, so a human is, is this big building. And I don't remember where I was going with this. It was back to the landowner. Back to the landowner, yes. So we, we don't want to just catapult someone to religion. We don't want to say, oh, like this Torah is true. Here's your trillin, right? Maybe, maybe there are some people who are ready for that. But people have to be willing to start from ground zero and, and, and build their relationship with the Almighty 
at a pace that's not going to be counterproductive, not skipping any steps, based upon kind of a good, healthy mental health even. Yeah. Balanced. And it's it's beautiful. It really is the most beautiful thing in the world to develop relationship with the Almighty. But we can't skip those steps. I agree. I mean, you, you always told me early on to take small steps. Like your first suggestion to me on Shabbos observance was just not to use my phone, which that, that one thing was so monumental to have my phone off for 25 hours. But you encouraged me. And you even said then, I remember, just do it for one week, just one Shabbos. Don't, I don't want you to even try it for two weeks in a row, you know, because we're not meant to have dramatic change. And you're right. If it happens too fast, and that's what you warned me, you told me about the Yetzirah. You said you want to go sort of stealth, make small little moves. It doesn't know you're trying to make that you're on trajectory to move further. And then you can sort of build that foundation. Now, I want to go back to one of the points I made in the intro as a motivating factor. And that is a way of reciprocating like to God. A way of reciprocating to God, because when people begin to focus just on the aspect of gratitude, you have your health, your eyes, you have a, you have a family and beautiful children and a, and a spouse. Look at, and you start to think about all these things the Almighty gave you. Even if you think you're the one responsible for all your money, fine, let, let them have that, right? Whatever success you had, but just all the things that they would attribute to the Almighty and say, how... What way do we have possible to reciprocate? And in the mitzvot, even just one of them is just one way of reciprocating. You know, like Shabbos, what is it? It's like a date night with your spouse. It's just Hashem wants one day with just us. Isn't that beautiful? Can you give Hashem one day? Uh, I think it's a, it's a beautiful argument and uh, it's a beautiful suggestion. I'll tell you, my grandfather, blessed memory, he used to say this. He used to say that the very first step of a person developing their spirituality is in appreciation and gratitude and stopping to feel entitled. The Yetzirah, as we like to call him, the force that wants to keep us small and keep us the way we are without any change, that force wants us to not, to not think and to just accept things the way they are. And the essence of Gratitude and appreciation is to say, well, things could have been different. Like you said, my eyes work. I could have been blind. My hands work, right? I have a livelihood. I have a family. I have good things. I, I enjoy life. That's not something we can take for granted. That's not something I'm entitled to. The second you're entitled to nothing, everything really is, is so beautiful. And you're so lucky to have everything. And that is the flowering of, of your spiritual life. It's like the first step. Which is why he said the first step is to focus on blessings, because a blessing is all about appreciation. You're about to enjoy a glass of water. You're about to enjoy uh, some food. That is time for you to say, this is a gift from the Almighty. And it's not something that I deserve per se. It's not something that is to be taken for granted. There's a lot of people that cannot enjoy this. There's a lot of times in history where this was exceedingly rare, but I have it. And I want to appreciate it. And I want to express my gratitude. And now you've kind of cracked a little, a little hole in that little cocoon that the Yetzirah wants to keep you in. And you, 100%, I think that's, that, that's a, very, a very good way to, to start off this, this relationship. I had some more thoughts about, about what I would do or what I would propose to understand this, 
or to kind of develop this this subject? Do you want to hear them? I want to hear them for okay. sure. That's why you're here. So first of all, there is um, there's a basic assumption of Mr. A Good Person or Mrs. or Miss or whatever pronoun that people want. <laughs> <laughs> We're friendly to all. Exactly. So the person who says, but I'm a good person, there's an aversion to the mitzvos, right? I don't need the mitzvos. I'm good enough. Why is there an aversion to mitzvos? Isn't that strange? If the mitzvos come from God, don't you think you should make it a little bit more appealing to us? Wouldn't it be easier to, you, you talked about the Jewish people being such a small minority. Wouldn't it be easier? Because in, in, you, assuming the thing we got it from God, right? Assuming we got it from God, he should make it so desirable and so seductive and so irresistible and so appealing in the eyes of everyone else that we should have to convince anyone. They should just want to sign on. Right, exactly. I had, uh, not to lose your train of thought, but I actually had, before you came over, conversation with my colleagues from work. And they said, what's the holiday coming up this week? And I said, Yom Kippur. It's like, is that a big holiday? It's like, oh, it's the, the biggest. And they said, well, what do you do? It's like, we deprive ourselves of food and water for 25 hours. And we spend pretty much the entire time, you know, Wednesday night, and all day Thursday, and we're just going to be saying these prayers over and over again, thinking about all the mistakes we made until we end up like in tears asking for forgiveness. And then after it's all over, we sit around and we wonder why no one wants to convert to Judaism. <laughs> Sounds like a real party. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to get you distracted. It's but yeah, it's, it's really funny. It's, it's very obvious so, why. So, Go ahead. So there's, and there's an amazing Mishnah in the chapters of our fathers that describes us running. We are running. We're running and running. How so? It says we should run towards a mitzvah and we should run away from a sin. So run towards a mitzvah, run away from, from sin. The Mishnah is counseling us to always be running, running in pursuit of a mitzvah and running fleeing from sin. So my grandfather pointed out one of his books. He said, what this is teaching us is that a mitzvah is escaping from us. It's running away from us. A sin is chasing after us. And therefore, if we want to accomplish the mitzvah, we have to chase it down. We've got to hunt it down. We've got to pursue it, run after it. Because if you don't run, forget about it. It's gone. Whereas a sin, we have to run away from it. We have to flee it. Because if we do nothing, the sin is going to consume us. The design of the world according to the Mishnah, is that mitzvos should not be appealing. That's the design. And everything else is chasing us, is appealing. You're trying to sell people something that seduces them, not a bit. The, the, there's, no, there's no appeal, there's no allure, there's no sizzle to what you're selling. The only way for them to get it is if they chase it down. Whereas the sin that you're telling them to avoid, that's chasing them. So it's not balanced. It's yeah, not seems, seems unfair. Seems unfair. So here's the answer. We believe, and you mentioned this earlier, that there has to be free will. There's free will. It's like a barbell, right? Barbell, you have the weight on the right side equals the weight on the left side. Right. Balance. You and I have both tasted the beauty of mitzvahs. We've chased them down to a certain extent, you know, and, and those things we found very appealing, what we've discovered is very appealing. So we're coming to someone that says, I want to be a good person. But I'm a good person. That person has no idea about what we've experienced. If you never experienced a full Shabbos, 
if you've never experienced a 25-hour Yom Kippur of fasting and praying, you don't know why that would in any way be appealing. Right. That sounds like self-flagellation, <laughs> right? What am I, a masochist? So you, so you and I are both masochists who found it to be very pleasurable. Maybe this should be rephrased, but just in the concept. Yeah. And we're trying to sell it to someone who sees it as pain because it's fleeing from him. And the only reason why that the world is designed like that is because if a mitzvah would have the same appeal as a sin, the people would do them in equal proportion because they'd be both as equally alluring to us. But the mitzvah, because it syncs up with our soul, because it feels like we've come home, because it gives us a lasting feeling of meaning, the mitzvah would be much more appealing. It means if they both have the same initial appeal and one of them gives you like a lasting good feeling, because again, it is synchronized with our soul, then no one would ever do any sin. Because if they both have the same initial attraction, but one gives you a great feeling afterwards and one doesn't, that's it, the free will's over. So the only way to have a balance is if the initial attraction of the sin outweighs that of the mitzvah, but the payoff of the mitzvah, once it's actually done, well, that exceeds that of the sin. And that way it's balanced. We got chased on the mitzvah, but once we do, we find deep meaning in it. So maybe the suggestion is to tell people this idea and say, hey, maybe it's worth a test drive. Try it out. Take it for a spin. These crazy Jews have been preaching this for years. Maybe it's worth just exploring. Maybe, maybe there's something there. What do you say about that? I like the, 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 the test drive idea. I, would, I wouldn't go right into Yom Kippur, but as a way of building up to that, like I think is the, the staple take it for a drive in Judaism has always been inviting someone over for Shabbos just to experience it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. But that, that's maybe, maybe that's different for every person of what, what could be their, their little taste into this insane world that you and I live in. But, but the principles is true that if right. they actually connect with the mitzvah and it resonates within them, then you know, we've unleashed a monster. Right. We've unleashed a monster because they have now tasted something that they want again because it gave them a good feeling. It, 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 it clicked. What do you say? Is that, is that, is that I like it. Word? Yes, absolutely. And then like you mentioned, you mentioned this in your intro, that the objective missiles are for our benefit. Right. Of course, we talk about the eternal benefit, Oma Ba, but even, even in this world, in this world, we also get the pleasure of our soul feeling content. And it's, it's, much, it's a much more of a subtle feeling, but it's, it's just as real. And the Almighty, of course, doesn't need our mitzvos. There's a, there's a midrash that I, I feel is apropos, germane to our subject. There is a midrash that says, does the Almighty actually care if I slaughter an animal from its neck or from its throat? If you slaughter an animal... And everything's kosher, kosher animal, kosher knife, kosher ritual slaughterer. But you do it from the neck, not from the throat. The animal is treif. It's not kosher. The meat's identical. Can't tell the difference. One's kosher and one is a sin, a violation of the Almighty's instruction. Says the Midrash, does the Almighty actually care if we slaughter from here or from there? So the Midrash says... The mitzvahs were only given to us to purify ourselves. 
how exactly this answers the question, all the commentaries have their own way of, of defining it. But the bottom line is, the mitzvahs were given for us. They were given to us for our benefit, for our betterment. And if you study the subject well enough, you'll discover it's for our benefit here as well as in the afterlife. Maybe it's worth a test drive. Maybe it's worth an exploration. Maybe that's, maybe that's the angle. I like it. You like it? I totally agree with that. Okay, let me tell you another thought I had of um, okay. the subject. Someone says, hey, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Don't let me do all these religious, ritualistic, ceremonial mitzvahs. So I think I would phrase a response to this as follows. Let's translate this to monetary economic terms. Suppose someone is collecting unemployment checks and they're sitting on their couch playing Xbox. Or better yet, they actually have a job and they're offered a pay raise. And someone says, hey, listen, you know, I, I could make my rent. I could even contribute to my 401k. And I'm, I'm up to date on my bills. And I'm not so far in debt. Why do I need a pay raise? I'm doing well enough. Of course, that would be nonsensical, right? Why would someone say, like, if you have the opportunity to make more money, why would you forego that? Is that right? Absolutely. As a licensed uh, financial planner, would you agree if someone's told, hey, would you like a pay raise? The answer should be yes. I would recommend taking the pay raise. Thank you. So I think mitzvahs are offering us spiritual pay raise. Like, why should we live with spiritual mediocrity when there is a tantalizing opportunity to have a spiritual pay raise. The Almighty is telling us, I want your life to be better. I want your life to be improved. I want your life to be more replete with meaning, with more vitality. I want you to live for something. I want you to live for a cause. I want your life to matter. He's offering us a pay raise. We're told, the Rambam speaks about this, that the mitzvahs are designed to give us immense pleasure. A pay raise. A pleasure pay raise. Why would you say no? The whole argument, I'm good enough, presupposes that this is a tax you have to pay. If I'm paying enough taxes, I don't want to pay any more taxes. That's what it presupposes. But we believe, and if you're fortunate enough to have experienced this, you know this to be true, that the mitzvahs are not a tax that you have to pay. They're a pleasure that the Almighty wants to give you. Well, if so, the whole argument doesn't make any sense. If I'm paying enough taxes, as my financial advisor, you would say, you don't need to pay more than than you need, then you're a fair share. Right. <laughs> you're Minimize. a fair share. You don't even pay more than your fair share, right? Right. Why not? Because that's a liability and you want to minimize that. So you have to do the minimum needed to make sure that you're, you're good with the IRS or you, you're paying whatever it is you need to pay. But if it's a pay raise, you want it. So this question just presupposes that mitzvahs are a liability and not an asset. And I think that what I would present to the individual who says, but I'm good enough, I would say, well, I have a very different definition of mitzvahs than you do. You view mitzvahs as taxes. I view it as income. And therefore, to me, it's more interesting and it's more exciting and it's more pleasurable when I immerse myself into this and maybe it's worthwhile to see if I'm not absolutely insane. Is it possible? Is it possible that... Me and Dan and millions of Jews throughout history, some of the most talented people who have ever graced this planet, all believed and lived lives where they, where they testified, so to speak, with their behavior, that this is the most 
pleasurable, enjoyable way to live. It's one that gives you the most meaning. In this, in this world, of course, the spiritual world, that's another argument. What do you, what's your plan for the afterlife is a good question. Hey, if the Almighty is actually going to punish you or reward you like we believe based upon the instructions of the Torah, you might be up a creek, as they say, if you don't have Torah. But that's one argument. But even in this world, if mitzvahs are something that are for, that they're for our benefit and we get to enjoy life more with them, then the argument of saying, but I'm good enough, is equivalent to saying, but I earn enough, when there is a pay raise being offered. Wonderful. So you think we convinced them? I think those are all outstanding arguments. You know what? Going back to the point that I said earlier, I feel like if I grew up a few zip codes over, I think this discussion may have succeeded in opening up the the thought patterns and maybe get me to consider, to reconsider. I think you did an excellent job. Oh, thank you. And I appreciate you coming on. I need to have you more on the Shmuel podcast. This is so wonderful having you on here. Well, it's an honor and a privilege. And I'm glad I was invited. I'm glad I didn't disappoint. You know, the only reason I don't ask you more is because I see the amount of content you're pushing out. And I, I know you're extremely busy doing that, but I'm going to still just be annoying and, and pester you more to make time for us. Awesome. I'm looking forward to that. I did a great podcast today, Parsha podcast. It's one of my favorite, my favorite episodes I've ever done. I did today, this morning in the Torch Center. I, I, I'm so happy with it. I think it's so clever. I have this, this new Mishigas. I think it's funny. I think it's hysterical. I had some people tell me, hey, you have responded to my emails. So I say to them, okay, well, what did you send the email to about my email address? Maybe next time I won't do it. You tell me if it's funny. I'll let you know. I'm trying to entertain. You, know, you always do a good job. I want to be able to have a good time. You did the, the ones you did on Yom Kippur that I've listened to this week. I was looking for something to get me past. I just want to get through. I want to you know do my atonement, set things straight, clear the slate with the Almighty. It was almost like when you don't feel like doing a workout. I just want to get through this. I know I'll feel good when it's over. I was like, but no, I don't want to waste that. Telling you, the podcast awesome. you did really got me very excited to appreciate and be present and enjoy that moment. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me and with a new lease on life. Thank you, Rabbi. Okay. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.